0: Good morning. Listen to the words of this song. I heard this on the radio the other day. That anchor man says they're fighting again. Somewhere in the Middle East, the world prays for peace. There's a single mom just got laid off, went and lost her job to some foreign hands in some faraway land. Last night in Oklahoma, some twister took 13, and they're praying that they find the missing three. God must be busy. That highway sign went from slow ahead to traffic's dead, though it couldn't get worse. Then that amber alert. They say she's four. Colorado plates. Heading out of state in a Chevy van. It's hard to understand. You can see it in the faces Of all those highway strangers, they're praying that God keeps that girl from danger. God must be busy. And I know in the big picture, I'm just a speck of sand, and God's got better things to do than look out for one man. I know He's heard my prayers because He hears everything. He just ain't answered back, or He'd bring you back to me. God must be busy. That evening news ain't changed much, pretty much the same since I left home. Yeah, that war's still on. They found that little girl. She was soaking wet, half scared to death on the side of some road. Them prayers work, you know. And the Bloods and Crips are at it, and there's a killer drought down south. And old folks can't afford the drugs, They can't live without. God must be busy. And I know in the big picture, I'm just a speck of sand. And God's got better things to do than look out for one man. I know he's heard my prayers because he hears everything. He just ain't answered back or he'd bring you back to me. God must be busy. That anchor man says the fighting's worse. Cities burn in the Middle East. The world prays for peace. There's a theology in that song. It's a popular or a folk theology that many people hold to. But is it the theology that the Bible teaches about God and prayer? As Gary said, I'm sure all of your Bibles are well-worn to the book of Habakkuk. It took me a while to find it when I began studying it. And now it's becoming a little more well-worn. Why would we study this little obscure prophet to Judah? What could he have to say to us today? In doing my study, one commentator said that you would only study this book... And you would only attempt to preach from this book if you love the underdog and the underdog role. I didn't know much about Habakkuk. I knew Habakkuk 2.4. It's a key verse. The just shall live by faith. Paul picks this up in Galatians and in Romans. The author of Hebrews picks it up as well. There's a section from chapter 3 that's often quoting, quoted at weddings, 17 through 19, Familiar passages. But I didn't know much about the book. I didn't know much about the prophet. Didn't know much about the context of the book. I'd read through it a few times, but hadn't really paid a whole lot of attention to it. So why do we study it? Why should we look at this book over the next four weeks? I believe there are some very big lessons to be learned in the book of Habakkuk. The first of them has to do with The theology of this song, in a sense. And it's a major question that everyone asks when these tragedies strike. Where is God? Why does a good and loving God allow bad things to happen to, quote-unquote, good people? The problem of evil in the world, theodicy. Where is God? How does he allow evil in the world? Habakkuk will teach us about this. Again, another reason that I mentioned has come from the key verse in Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. It's foundational for us. It was the cry of the reformers, Luther, Calvin. It's the truth that they discovered and brought back for us. Again, I mentioned Paul picks this up in Romans. You'll know, notice you're reading for next week. And I noticed it might be a little unclear in the, in the bulletin. I want you to read Romans 1.17 is where Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Then I also want you to read chapter 4 of Romans. It's where Paul goes into a longer discourse about uh, justification by faith. We need to be reminded about this doctrine. Just as it was under attack early on in the church and the reformers fought to bring it back. It is again under attack today. There are those who are questioning Paul's teaching of justification by faith. They're saying that it's other than what we know it to be. And we'll look at that more next week. But we need to know and be strong in that justification comes through faith alone and nothing else. Habakkuk will teach us that God is at the center of history. He's not disengaged. He He hasn't removed himself where he doesn't know what's going on from history. He isn't, as the deist taught, built a watch, wound it up, and just let it run to itself. No, God is at the center of history. He orchestrates all of history. And we will see this. Habakkuk will teach us that we can worship this God with all of our heart in the midst of tremendous troubles, in the midst of trying times, When everything we know has been destroyed or turned upside down on its head, we can worship God and have a tremendous amount of joy. These are the things that Habakkuk will teach us. In a nutshell, Habakkuk is going to teach us how we live by faith in a God who is alive and active today in the affairs of men. We know very little about Habakkuk himself. This book doesn't tell us much. We know he's a prophet. Some suggest from uh, some verses in chapter 3 that Habakkuk was a priest. um, And we know Habakkuk had a burden. Uh, Habakkuk, his name means to embrace. Embrace. And I think he's appropriately named. We, We will see that Habakkuk despite everything else that was going on, embraced God. And he will teach us that, there's, that God is the only thing we can embrace. Habakkuk is a man of prayer. This little book really, to me, comes across as this is a prayer. This is times of personal communion that Habakkuk had with God. Habakkuk wrestles with some tough questions questions that we wrestle with. And God has recorded this for us, preserved it throughout history so that we might learn some valuable lessons. The timing of this book, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans destroyed the Assyrian capital of Nineveh in 612 B.C. They went on and defeated Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish in 605. So somewhere in this time period, that this book was written. Babylon had become a world power. They were a ruthless nation. And as you may have picked up on some of the characteristics that Gary read for us in chapter 1, as God tells Habakkuk about this people that he's going to use, they were a brutal people. So there's a little bit of background on Habakkuk. Before we get into his word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer one more time. Our God and Father, we come before You and we just ask this morning that You would uh, just teach through me, through the power of Your Spirit. Open our hearts and minds to the truth of Your Word. May we embrace You, the one true God, who is sovereign over all history. Who is holy in all of his action, who is just and upright. May you teach us to cling to you. May we lose sight of all else but you. We thank you that in you our faith has found its resting place. We need no other arguments. We need no other pleas. It is enough that you are everything for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray and by the power of your spirit. Amen. This is a convicting little book. If you look at the first few verses here, verses 2 through 4, we find that Habakkuk is not real happy with the conditions in which he found himself living. Many of us often complain about our situation. But I think what Habakkuk's doing is different. He's not complaining about his own personal plight. He's not saying, Lord, you've given me the short end of the stick. I think rather what Habakkuk is saying here is he's decrying against the moral decay that existed in the people of God. He's crying out against the oppression and the violence. Look at these words that describe the times in which he lives. Verse 2, it says, violence. Verse 3, you make me look at iniquity or injustice. You cause me to look on wickedness. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention. The law is ignored. There is no justice. Justice is perverted. Habakkuk cannot stand to see God's people living this way. He's not talking about the Babylonians. He's not complaining that the pagans are living this way. He's upset because the believers, quote-unquote, the followers of God, God's people, are living this way. Jeremiah has some insight as to what was going on at this time in a little more description. Describes some of this violence, this oppression. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3 through 10. Listen to what's going on in Israel At this time. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. You will steal, murder, and commit adultery, And swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal. And walk after other gods that you have not known. Then come stand before me in this house which is called by my name. And say, we are delivered. That you may do all these abominations. Would that make you upset? To see believers... Living this way, coming here Sunday morning and saying, Jesus Christ is my all in all. He saved me. That's what I live for. But all the week, they're stealing from people. They're cheating people in their business. They're oppressing the widows and the orphans. They're committing abortions, shedding innocent blood. And following after everything this world has to offer, seeking pleasure and fulfillment from them. And then come in here Sunday morning and say, God is my God. He will deliver me. God says, no. Those are deceptive words. You are deceiving yourself. Those were the people that Habakkuk was living with and amongst. And he was decrying that situation. Saying, God, how long do I have to look at this? I'm sure there was a faithful remnant in Israel. And they were standing with Habakkuk. Lord, how long do we have to wait? How long do we have to see your name dragged through the mud? The kings were no better. In Jeremiah 22, God rebukes Jehoiakim. He tells him in verse 16, To truly know God is to plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy. In verse 17 he says, But you, Jehoiakim, you are bent on dishonest gain, shedding innocent blood, practicing extortion, and oppression. I'm encouraged by some of the ministries that people are involved here, in, here at CBC. I will confess, when we first started our ministry with, um, I'm losing his name, Ken. Uh, Dima, thank you. With the orphans. I was like, what are we doing caring about orphans in Romania? Ukraine, sorry. (laughs) See? That's the very thing we should be concerned about. But not just there. We should be concerned about the orphans everywhere. We should we do a pretty good job, I think, of caring for widows in our body. I'm sure they could tell us we could probably do a little bit better. But what about the widows and orphans in this community around us? Can we do more? Can we do more? God wants us to care for those who are afflicted and oppressed. These widows and orphans are helpless. They can't help themselves a lot of times. Instead of helping them, these people in Judah... We're oppressing them and taking advantage of them. There's much more that God has to say about this in this little book. But think about this. Think about what Jeremiah says, what God says through Jeremiah. Living by faith. And we'll get into this more next week. Living by faith is taking care of widows and orphans. It's what God says to Jehoiagim, to plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Al's living by faith when he pleads the cause of those at Fraser's Courts out in West Dallas. Helping rebuild with others. It's living by faith. It's not just saying Sunday morning when we come to gather together that Jesus is my Savior. It's living it out. That's what God and Habakkuk are decrying against. These people came to the temple and claimed God is our deliverance. God says, no, I'm not. Because you are not a people that follows after me with your heart. You have deceptive words. You're deceiving yourselves. How often today do we preach peace to people who live like these people live? But yet we say, well, I think they made a profession when they were a kid. If they did, instead of saying just bank on that profession, I think the Scripture gives us some more to say, you might want to look at your life to see if that profession was real. God seems to say that here. He tells the Israelites this very thing. You're trusting in deceptive words. Those words aren't true. Like I said, we'll talk more about that next week when we get into justification by faith and what that really means. It is not just trusting in an empty statement. It is so much more. Habakkuk is very sensitive to the injustices that are happening in Israel. He is crying out. He is pleading with God in intensity for God to do something about the evil. That exists amongst his people. Is that what we pray for? Do we plead with God to clean up the injustices, the sin that's in the church, let alone the rest of the world? Do we plead with God for this thing? Too often I find. That we want to turn to government for answers. We want government to take care of the problems. But Habakkuk says. The wicked control the government. They control the courts. And when that happens. Justice is perverted. I think Paul. Has a lot something to say about that in Corinthians about why go to the courts with your brother? Justice is going to come out perverted. We need to go to God. Habakkuk cries out to God. He doesn't cry out for kings and government. He cries out to God for help. God answers Habakkuk in verse five. Through 11. And it is not the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. God says, look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Be amazed and wonder. Because I'm going to do something in your days, even though I'm telling you it's going to happen, you are not going to believe it. You will not believe what I'm going to do. You are not going to believe, Habakkuk, how I'm going to judge the sin of Israel. I kind of think, as God responds, he puts a dramatic pause in there. to Let Habakkuk think about, how is God going to do this? He, See, he, he, he brought a flood one time. He caused all the people to not be able to speak the same language at the Tower of Babel. Oh, we had the Exodus. He did all these plagues and all these wonderful things and... Made Pharaoh let us go? How is God going to act? I don't think it ever crossed his mind that God would take the most wicked, the most ruthless nation at that time and come in and judge his people. Do we think that we're exempt and safe from God's judgment? I think we have that attitude a lot of times as believers. God won't judge us. We're safe. We're his people. He tells Habakkuk, no. You're going to get judged. You're going to face the effects along with the rest of your fellow people. I think Habakkuk, I know Habakkuk was righteous. And there was a faithful remnant. But they're going to suffer along with the rest of the unrighteous. People say, that's not fair. If they're righteous, why is God going to let them suffer? Why will they suffer with the unrighteous? And at the hands of an unrighteous people. I know it was very unpopular after 9-11 when Jerry Falwell and some others said this was God's judgment on this nation. Well, who is Jerry Falwell to say he knows the will of God? It could never be. Could it? Could that have been a warning shot, in essence, to say to the church in America, wake up? Wake up? I don't know for sure. But I look at this passage, and what it tells me is God will use wicked people to judge his people when they're in sin. I know for a fact, well, I don't know for a fact. I would say there's a pretty good chance that there were believers that died on 9-11 as a result of those attacks. Was that fair for God to judge or to have those people die and suffer in those attacks? Hard questions. But God says that he does these things. And he says it right here in verse 6. I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And he takes the rest of these verses to say the Babylonians thought they were doing it on themselves. They thought they were all powerful. They thought they gained their victories from their own strength. But God tells Habakkuk, no, I'm raising them up. I, the Lord God, am raising these people up to punish Judah and Israel for their sin. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that God brings calamity and brings trials and tribulations on His people. God warned Israel that He would do this in Deuteronomy if they forsook Him. Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-nine and following. I will bring this people in judgment upon you. It shouldn't have been a surprise. Habakkuk hadn't read his Pentateuch lately. (laughs) Or maybe he wanted to not see it. Habakkuk then answers God in verse 12. Aren't thou not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. We will not die. Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge. And thou, O rock, hast established them to correct. Habakkuk got God's message. God said, I am raising up. And Habakkuk answers him and says, okay. You are raising them. You have appointed them to correct us. But he struggles with this. And the rest of this passage. he says, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. He knows God's holy character. And he's saying, how can you do this? How can you allow these wicked Babylonians to prosper? Verses 14 through 17 are a description of just how easily and how greatly they prospered they conquered nation after nation with ease he describes it as a fishing net throwing the fishing net and he's gathered them all up it's that easy for him god why are you allowing them to prosper habakkuk does not understand I would say we don't understand at all of God's ways and who He uses to do His will. But look at what Habakkuk says. Oh Lord, my God, my holy one. What is Habakkuk saying when He's saying, God, you are holy? Is He just saying, yeah, that's a nice attribute? You no, I think Habakkuk is going back and resting his faith on the fact that God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? He's without sin, yes. He's pure. But that means God can only do, can only act righteously. He can only do what is right. And that even though Habakkuk does not understand What God is doing. And can't understand how he's going to use the Babylonians. This wicked people to judge sin. He says. You are holy. And I have to rely on that. That is enough for me. These are lessons we need to learn now. They're harder to learn when you're in the midst of the trial. Or the tribulation. It's hard to then say. God you are holy. And I. I will bank on that no matter what. I, even though I don't understand what you're doing. Learn these lessons now. So that when the trials come, we can bank on the holiness of God. And say, I don't understand what you're doing, Lord. But I know it must be righteous and just. Because you are a holy God. And you can do nothing to the contrary. And then he says... To the Lord, you are a rock. You are a rock. What does that mean? Stability and strength. Jesus tells the parable or the story of the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built on the rock. The foolish man built on the sand. Why do you build on a rock? We take our foundations when we build down to bedrock. The soils around here are terrible in Texas. You can't build on a lot of it. There's no firm foundation. God is our rock. Habakkuk saying, you are my rock. In you I find strength and stability. Even though I don't know what's going on around me, I can't understand how you're working. I will trust In you. I'll put my faith in you. Habakkuk also says, You have appointed them. He's trusting in the sovereignty and the providence of God. This is not by happenstance that this happened. It wasn't just mere coincidence or mere timing issue God dictated that this would happen at the appointed time Habakkuk takes refuge and comfort in this I saw this last week with a friend of mine Dave Glock at Emmaus Bible College when we, uh, we got there last week I shared with you the news my sister told me on Saturday night The next morning, I got a call from my best friend, John Glock, that his mom was dying. Called me 10 minutes later and said the doctors have called all the family in. She's got a couple of hours. And Dave, the father, at the funeral, recounted how after she died, he was sitting on a front porch that he had built a couple years ago for Melzi. One rocking chair now empty. And he was saying, Lord would it have really messed up your grand scheme if you gave me a couple more months? What could that have hurt to have a couple more months with my wife? And he said, as he reflected on their life together, that never once did he question all the good things that God had done in their life. The good things that he had sovereignly appointed to happen. The way she had gotten saved through her sister who received a tract from an unknown person as she boarded a train. How he brought them together at their assembly in Baltimore and a myriad of other things. And he said, the Lord told me and taught me from his word that I must accept his perfect timing in this as well. I accept all the good things. I must accept this as well. That's resting in the sovereignty of God and in His providence. And we need to learn these lessons now before we're in the storm. Calvin writes, reflecting on this passage, if indeed the mass of evils be so great and so thick that our minds are overwhelmed, they are not clouds with the thick darkness of night. In that case, our faith cannot stand firm except the providence of God comes to our view so that we may know in the midst of such confusion why He permits so much liberty to the wicked and also how their attempts may turn out and what may be the issue. Unless we are fully persuaded that God by His secret providence regulates all these confusions, Satan will a hundred times a day, yea, every moment, shake that confidence which ought to repose in God. Habakkuk found confidence in the holy providence and sovereignty of God. He acknowledged God's divine prerogative to do this, even though he did not understand. Calvin had another prayer that I thought was good for these kind of times. You see how I am distracted, Lord and also held fast bound, distracted by many absurd thoughts, so that I am almost confounded and held fast bound by great perplexities from which I cannot extricate myself. I'm going to pause for a minute. Are these not some of the questions that we dwell on in times of trial and tragedy? Calvin says they're great perplexities. We can't understand them. But he says we get distracted by these. These are not the issue. These are not necessarily the questions we should be asking. Instead, we ought to be resting in God's sovereignty and His holiness. He continues, Do you, O Lord, unfold to me these knots and concentrate My scattered thoughts, that I may understand what is true and what I am to believe. And especially remove from me this doubt, lest it should shake my faith. O Lord, grant that I may at length know and fully understand how Thou art just, and how You overrule consistently with perfect equity those things. Which seem to be so confused. What Calvin's exhorting us to from this passage. Don't worry about the details of what's going on around us. Those are the things that confuse our minds. They distract us from what we need to focus on. The things that are really true is that God is just. That He rules over everything. And this is not confusion to him. This is his well-orchestrated plan. And he does it perfectly. This is what we need to rest our faith on. Rest it on God. Even though we can't understand what's going on around us. We need to learn that now. I can't stress that enough. There are so many people that don't learn this lesson now and abandon the faith when tough times come. I remember recently when I was in seminary, there were several very well-known men, authors that you've probably read, that when they faced tough times in their lives, they had not learned these lessons. And so now they're redefining God and what he knows and his sovereignty because they didn't learn these lessons they said I'm a good person I'm a child of God how can he let this bad thing happen to me and so to protect God from these tough questions they say God doesn't really know the future the future is unknowable We humans are so free in our choices that there's no way God can know the future. They have a hard time with passages like this. That God says, I do know the future. I do know what I'm doing. I don't know how that gives them comfort to say God didn't know the future. But he is loving. Can't do anything about my situation, but he's a nice guy. That doesn't do much for me. I would rather struggle in a time of difficulty knowing that my God is in absolute control and is doing this for my sanctification to make me conform to the image of Jesus Christ and that I will have an eternal weight of glory one day because of it than to say, well, he just didn't know and, you know, oh, well. That's not comforting to me. Habakkuk teaches us to rest in the holiness, the providence, and the sovereignty of God. That's where we rest our faith. That is our foundation. It is in God. And in God alone. Nothing else. Chapter 2, verse 1 kind of ends this section. It's kind of an odd verse he says I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how to reply when I am reproved a lot of commentators didn't even say anything about this verse because it's kind of an odd verse what is he saying here what is Habakkuk saying well I went with what Calvin had to say. And you can disagree. Calvin's not an errant, But I find him to be a good teacher of the word that God has gifted and given to the church. Calvin says, when, when Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand on my guard post and I'm going to station myself on the rampart. Habakkuk has chosen to elevate himself Above the worldly chatter, above the worldly questions that he talked about earlier, why would God allow this to happen? Habakkuk elevates himself. And how does he do this? How does Habakkuk raise himself up above this fray and get a godly perspective on things? Well, if you know the reformers, the word was everything for them. The word was how you live. And Calvin says Habakkuk elevates himself above this through the work of the Spirit in his life, teaching him the word of God and what the word of God has to say about God himself. The only way we learn lessons about God is right here in his word. This isn't a collection of nice stories. It's a collection of God revealing Himself to us so that we might know Him. So we might come to faith in Jesus Christ and know the one true God. That's what the Scriptures are about. The Scriptures reveal God to us. It's how God revealed Himself to man. Through His Word. We need to be in the Word of God. All of it. All of it has something to teach us about God. And there are so many aspects of God that we need to learn that it will take an eternity to do so. This is just an introduction that we get to work on in this lifetime. The rest of it comes in eternity. But we've got to get through the introduction here. And we need to be introduced to Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that God spoke in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us decisively through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. There is no other way that you find salvation. That is a message we have to carry to the world. Because if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're not going to know the Father. Because Hebrews tells us, Jesus Christ has explained the Father perfectly. And until I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I cannot know the Father. We have to know Christ. We have to introduce people to Christ so that they can know the Father, so that they can know that God is holy and just and sovereign and that everything that's going on in this world is not catching God by surprise, it's not out of control, but that God is intricately, day by day, orchestrating what He wants to happen for His glory and for our good. But that doesn't mean anything unless we know Jesus Christ. In closing, if you have your bulletin, look at the, the prayer list for the 20 this month. This isn't exactly going to match what we've talked about today, but it uh, it comes pretty close. Look at number one there. Talking about the workshop, translating the book of Galatians to these language groups. Why did they pick the book of Galatians? Why wouldn't you do the book of John? Or maybe Romans, which really unfolds the gospel. Why did they pick the book of Galatians? I don't know it seems to me that these people were led by the spirit of God to use Galatians for this group of people these language groups God's intervening in history right here these believers didn't just randomly open their Bible oh fell open to Galatians that's what we'll do. I'm sure they prayerfully considered, what book should we translate for these people? The Spirit of God led them to translate Galatians. God intervening in history today. Look at number two. At this conference in Norway, these donor countries pledging $4.8 billion in aid to Sudan. These countries that pledge this money, they aren't theocracies. They aren't nations that follow hard after God and His righteousness. But we see God using pagan, wicked countries to accomplish His purposes in Sudan, that the gospel might go into this country. Number three. Children being subscripted to fight in the armies. Think of you folks here with young boys. Most of these boys that I look out here would be, from what this says, being handed a gun to go fight and wipe out another tribe, another clan. This is something to pray about, to cry out to God that this would stop. These are real issues. And you can think of many more. We've got our own issues in this country. We shed innocent blood by the thousands in our abortion clinics. We ought to cry out to God as a church, not a political movement. As Christians and believers we ought to cry out about that. We need to partner in prayer with Al and support Fraser Courts. We need to continue to pray and support Dima. We need to find other opportunities closer to home and pray and cry out for these widows and orphans in our communities. Continue to pray. Uh, I can't pronounce her name, Tom. But I was thinking about that this morning. We need to pray. Plead with God on their behalf. God will use a variety of ways to break into people's lives. I mean, the fact that they have a Farsi Bible is amazing. Maybe that's how God is going to break into this Muslim community in Richardson. Raise up a Muslim prophet. Maybe it'll be Ali. <laughs> we need to really pray for these things. Pray that God will act before He brings His judgment. And His judgment is coming. We know it's coming. Scripture tells us that it is. And He is patient and long-suffering that none should perish. Are we being good stewards with the gospel? Do we have concern, and as Robert said, compassion for those who are lost? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about you. That you are holy and that you are just. Father, help us to help your spirit to drive home these points in our lives. So that when the storms and the trials come. We can say like Habakkuk. You, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And we rest our faith in you. And we know that we will weather the storm and the trials through you. You are our protection. And even though we might die in this life, we know that You have provided a way for us to enjoy eternity with You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to live by faith, day by day, moment by moment. And when our faith grows weak, may we turn to Your Word and to You, which is rock solid and our shelter from the storm. Father, we do pray for those who are oppressed. Father, help us to be compassionate, to seek opportunities to minister, not just in word, but in deed. We pray and thank you for people like Dima, who are ministering to orphans and caring for them in very real and practical ways we thank you that that allows him opportunities with the gospel. We pray for Al and the others who are ministering at Fraser Courts. We thank you for the way you've provided there new homes and new housing. Make these opportunities and inroads into the lives of these people for the gospel. So that they may come to know Jesus Christ and the one who sent him, the one true God. Father, there's so many things we need to be concerned about and praying for. Use your spirit to direct our hearts and our minds in these areas. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.